Community Radio is listener-sponsored. That's right. 80% of our funding comes from donations from listeners just like you. You've stepped up and helped us meet one match already on the way to our $56,000 spring drive goal. Now, in the last week of the drive, we've got another special incentive to help us finish strong. Contribute at kboo.fm give by May 28th, and your donation will be matched dollar for dollar up to $7,000, thanks to the generous support of a group of anonymous donors. All donations will be matched, even if you've already given this drive. Make one last contribution to KBOO's annual spring membership drive at kboo.fm slash give. Right now. This is Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender justice, and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, as global leaders and corporate executives gather in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum, claiming that they're, quote, committed to improving the state of the world, I'll turn to Irit Tamir of Oxfam about the ongoing trend of rising inequality that those corporate executives are contributing to. Then longtime analyst, commentator and author Bill Fletcher Jr. joins me to explore the question of why some on the left continue to excuse Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Finally, Dr. Anna Malinow of Physicians for a National Health Program will share how the Biden-Harris administration has rebranded a model of payment for Medicare that opens the door to privatization and how activists are campaigning to overturn it. That's coming up in just a moment.
This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Global leaders and corporate executives are hobnobbing this week in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. As inflation and profits are peaking, Oxfam has released a new report pointing out the obscene trend in wealth inequality and concluding that the COVID-19 pandemic created a new billionaire every 30 hours and that this year about a million people will fall into extreme poverty also every 30 hours. My guest is Irit Tamir, Director of the Private Sector Department at Oxfam America. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So for those of our, among our audience who are not familiar with the World Economic Forum, give us a brief overview of what this forum is. It used to get a lot more attention, but these days it doesn't seem to be getting as much news coverage. Yeah, well, the World Economic Forum is a gathering of politicians, billionaires, and corporate leaders who come together every year in Davos, Switzerland, um, to talk about how to solve the world's problems, inequality being among uh, one of the top problems that they're looking to solve. Um, which of course is rather ironic in that um, many of the reasons why we have inequality today is because of the influence of these very people. So every year I know that Oxfam tries to influence what the World Economic Forum is doing by pointing out that it is precisely the the uh, policies of corporate profiteering that's driving inequality and you have put together a lot of documentation. So tell me about this year's report, um, Profiting from Pain, published to coincide with the World Economic Forum. I gave the sort of top line um, idea of and, and conclusion of how fast billionaires were being, individual billionaires were being created and how at the same rate a million people around the world are being driven into extreme poverty. So tell me about profiting from pain. Yeah, sure. Look, um, we were already on a trajectory um, to increase inequality over time, but the pandemic supercharged um, the rate at which inequality is um, taking hold. And really, um, those that are gathering in Davos this week have so much to celebrate because they are doing very, very well. The pandemic has been very good to the billionaire class. As you have rightly pointed out, it is now creating a new billionaire every 30 hours. But at the same time, we are um, seeing 1 million people being driven into extreme poverty. And we know that this is already on the back of 20 million people being killed by the pandemic itself. Um, so we are seeing inequality just increase at an ever greater rate. In fact, billionaires have made more in the last 24 months of the pandemic than they did in the last 23 years combined. It has been a good time to be a billionaire. The story that billionaires and wealthy elites tell themselves is that they are minting money because they work really hard, they're really smart, they're innovative, and they care about global poverty. And if only everyone had the same opportunity, and they talk about investment, and they talk about how it's not about ensuring that the pie is divided equally, but that there's just a bigger pie, right? I mean, is this just all a myth? in terms of how the global elites gathered at the World Economic Forum view economics and the state of the world? Um, absolutely, look, uh, this is a problem of a rigged economic system. Billionaires are being taxed um, at a very low rate. In fact, working people are taxed often more than billionaires. And this is our main problem, is the way in which our system is taxing economic revenue and economic activity. So- And when you say first, they're uh, poor people are taxed more, you mean the sort of percentage of what they earn right. is taxed more than the percentage of what a billionaire earns? 
That's correct. Um, and so look, there, there are some really common sense solutions here. What we really need is governments to come in and to decide, are they with the billionaire class or will they be with average working people? Um, because the solutions are quite simple here. Um, for starters, right here in the United States, Congress could pass um, President Biden's billionaire tax proposal. This would establish a 20% minimum tax rate on all American households worth more than $100 million, okay? We are talking about the very, very rich, the super rich, not even just the rich, $100 million. Um, so that is a very small class of people, and yet it would create so much revenue that we could then invest in the things that you are talking about, education, health, infrastructure, good jobs, climate change, all of those things that would actually make our society much better. The other thing Congress could and should do is pass the kind of tax reform that is outlined in the Build Back Better proposal that would help to close corporate tax avoidance loopholes and tax haven abuse. And finally, we need to actually tax excess profits for those industries that are literally profiting from the pandemic and now from this food and energy crisis that we're seeing. Right. Um, we are experiencing a shortage of baby formula here in the United States. Uh, inflation is hitting ordinary Americans with food prices going up and, of course, gas prices going up. And you point out in your report, in Oxfam's report, Profiting from Pain, that the world's 10 richest men own more wealth than the bottom 40% of humanity. That's 3.1 billion people. 10 men owning the same amount of money, wealth, etc., compared to 3.1 billion people. It is horrifying that we live in such a world. Um, so the solutions, as you said, are simple. It's just that our political leaders, or just a handful of our polit political leaders are standing in the way of realizing them. You can name them like Senator Joe Manchin, etc. Um, and and uh, so the solutions are obvious. It's just a matter of getting them through. And it's the, the idea is that, of course, these are the folks gathered at, at the World Economic Forum who don't want to adopt these obvious ideas. Is anybody at the World Economic Forum talking about, well, let's use the direct way to reduce inequality by sharing some of our money. Let's pay higher taxes. Is anyone saying that? Well, unfortunately, what typically um, comes out of the mouths of um, many is philanthropy, donations, right? They want um, to be able to control who they give and where they give, and they want the PR that goes with looking generous, but they don't want that money to be taken control of by governments. Exactly, and the problem, of course, with that is that philanthropy is at the whim of the individual's will, right? It's it's whatever they choose to donate to and when they choose to donate and how they choose to donate. It's power. There's nothing, it's power and there's nothing democratic about it. Um, and as I said, we, we live in a system that is rigged. Um, it is rigged towards those that are already wealthy in order for them to get wealthier and the rest of us, unfortunately, are having to work much harder for less um, because we know our wages now are not going as far as they need to in light of inflation. Um, I'd love to just tell you, a, you know, a contrasting story of two people. Um, one is James Cargill. Um, I think James Cargill is probably at Davos this week. His family is the 11th richest family in the world and owns the majority of Cargill one of the four companies that control over 70% of the global market of agricultural commodities. Commodities like wheat and other grains that are critical food staples for so many people. This dynasty grew by almost $20 million each day since the start of the pandemic. And in 2021, Cargill made its biggest profit in history and they stand to exceed that this year, they made $5 billion in 2021, and they're going to probably um, break the record this year for making even more profits. 
Um, they went from eight billionaires before the pandemic in their family to now having 12. And you contrast that with a person like Nelly Kamambala. She's a primary school teacher. She works hard too. Every single day she goes to work and tries to make a living. And she lives with her husband, two children, and her elderly mother in Malawi. And yet she told Oxfam that she can no longer afford to buy cooking oil to feed her family. She is going to the store now and wondering what can she buy in order to feed her household because the prices are rising so high that she can afford less and less. This is a rigged system when Mr. Cargill and other billionaires are able to profit from these crises. It's just not fair. And this was what advocates of local systems of food were arguing uh, and warning about years ago, right? Because of the food monopolies that we, that our global capitalist system has created, uh, commodifying food, here we are where a single individual, single corporation can benefit um, from, and from, from scarcity and can actually um, cause scarcity and reap profits with very little uh, sense of, of the global good. So right now we have these elites gathered in Davos. They claim that they are committed to improving the state of the world. Um, I know Oxfam in the past has been allowed to enter sometimes and allowed to be that voice of civil society. What sort of presence does Oxfam have at the World Economic Forum this year? Yes, our Oxfam International Executive Director is at Davos again this year, um, and we will continue to engage at Davos because I believe we are a voice that is speaking truth to power, to let people know that philanthropy is not gonna cut it. It's not lack of investment um, from these companies. It's the way our economic system and rules are built. We need to change the rules. We need governments to step in and we need them to do it immediately and to start taxing this extreme wealth. I wanna thank you so much, Irit, for joining us. Where can people get a hold of the report, the Oxfam report, Profiting from Pain, so they can delve into it themselves? Sure, um, they can go to our website, oxfam.org or oxfamamerica.org, either one, and you'll be able to find um, that report. Thank you again so much for joining us. Good luck to you. Wonderful, thank you. My guest has been Irit Tamir, Director of the Private Sector Department at Oxfam America. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. President Joe Biden signed into law a $40 billion aid package to fund security, humanitarian, and economic aid to Ukraine. While progressive lawmakers like Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez voted for the bill, some activists on the left criticized the move. In fact, the left has been split on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with some compelled to oppose any Western-backed position 
and others insisting that Ukraine has the right to sovereignty and self-determination. Joining me now is Bill Fletcher Jr., former co-founder of the Black Radical Congress, past president of Trans-Africa Forum, writer, trade unionist, and senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies. He recently co-wrote a lengthy analysis for new politics called When Should We Stop Excusing the Russian Invasion? Welcome to the program, Bill. Glad to be on board. Thank you. So was it an accurate characterization that there are some on the left who just uh, don't like the idea of, especially of backing a war? Um, when I, and I say war, I mean a Ukraine war to stop the Russians from invading. That's the war that they don't like to back because the West is aligned behind it. Yeah, I mean, you, you summarize it. Uh, I, I think that there are um, loud voices. I don't know how, I can't, really discern how many, but there are loud voices that are basically saying that uh, the U Ukrainians are on their own. And, um, or, and, and in some cases, worse than that, and uh, suggesting that the Russians have a legitimate reason to violate the sovereignty of Ukraine. Um, and so this, this has become a very bitter uh, uh, split with you know those of us on the other side saying that this is a violation of national sovereignty, national self determination. You don't have to like the Ukrainian regime. What you have to do though is recognize that there's something called the violation of international law, which is what the Russians are doing. The point you just made about you don't have to like the Ukrainians is critical because very early on we heard. Folks on the left say that there are Nazi factions in Ukraine, and therefore it would be foolish to back uh, Ukraine's fight. I mean, most on the left didn't go as far as believing Putin saying that his war was a war against Nazism, which is what he's been saying. But it sort of amounts to de facto the same thing, right? Ukraine is filled with Nazis, and therefore we shouldn't back their fight. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting, Sonali, um, on this. So first of all, there's fascists in virtually every capitalist country, including the United States. So maybe we should send the military into a few states to clean out the Nazis, um, which is actually not a bad idea. So, so that's one, one issue. The, the second thing, though, is that the, um, this issue ignores that there is an internal matter within Ukraine. Of course there's Nazis there and other fascists, right? But that is an internal matter for the Ukrainian people. The, the Russians have no right to intervene in Ukraine because Ukraine offered no threat to Russia. Now, on top of that, the Putin regime is uh, not exactly a paragon of democracy. And in fact, one could argue quite convincingly that the Putin regime is absolutely a right-wing authoritarian, if not semi-fascist regime that is white supremacist, homophobic, internally repressive, externally aggressive. I mean, so on what basis would anyone in their right mind believe that the Putin regime could be those that introduce some sort of progressive transformation of Ukraine? It just, it, it, it's just simply not the case. Now, the last thing I'd say about this, I want to remind your viewers and listeners that in 1989, the United States invaded Panama on a pretext that the government of Manuel Noriega was corrupt, was engaged in all sorts of nefarious activities, and that it was up to the United States to take a step to remove the Noriega regime and to imprison Noriega. I don't know any legitimate leftists that rallied with George H.W. Bush in calling for and in supporting that invasion. And that clear violation of international law. Well, if that, vi if that was a violation of international law, how is the Russian invasion of Ukraine any different? You recently um, on Real News Network um, had a conversation with Noam Chomsky, who, you know, is uh, at least t 20 years ago was considered a, the, the leading foreign policy analyst in the United States. Uh, Chomsky remains active. And a lot of 
folks have taken issue with his position. Ukrainian progressives have taken issue with his position because he seems to fall on the side of, well, even though I don't excuse what Russia did, we should, you know, it's understandable what Russia did. Tell me about that conversation. It was a fascinating conversation, Sonali, and um, I have great respect for Dr. Chomsky. That said, we had big disagreements. Um, so, so when when uh, central to Chomsky's thinking are two pieces, I'd say. One is that he tends to look at the world in terms of great power politics, and the second is that his view fundamentally comes down to the U.S. has no right to criticize anyone else because the U.S. has a long history of criminal activity. Now, I agree with the latter, that there's a great deal of criminal activity in the history of the United States. There's no question about that. But if you take his position to its logical conclusion, the United States should not have been called upon to slap sanctions on apartheid South Africa in the 1980s. Because after all, we were the country of Jim Crow segregation. We continue to have uh, rampant racist discrimination and oppression here. So on what basis could we criticize? Um, if you took his position to the logical conclusion, in 1936, when the global left rose up to support the Spanish government, when the Nazis, the German Nazis and the Italian fascists intervened in that civil war and the global left said no we can't allow this to happen we're not only going to, we're going to volunteer to fight but we're also going to call upon imperialist governments united states britain and france to provide weapons to the spanish republic then following chomsky's argument that would never have happened so i think that the the argument is is really problematic but the other part of what where i would disagree with chomsky is that he this assumption that everything needs to be seen through the eyes of global politics, so a great power politics. So for example, he made an argument that I found sort of strange, which was, well, clearly in order to resolve this, the Ukrainians are gonna have to give up Crimea, give up the Donbass and agree to neutral, neutralization. Well, you know, that's really good for a North American to say, but what about asking the Ukrainians what they're prepared to give up? If they're prepared to give up anything. And what's happened is as this war has progressed and the brutality of the Russians has become so obvious, the willingness to compromise in the parts of many Ukrainians has, um, has weakened, as one could understand, because they're very bitter. So I think that, uh, that Chomsky's approach on this is misguided, even though he, uh, he and I would agree it, to oppose the Russian invasion. Absolutely. There's one thing to be said for when Western powers, political leaders take steps to take advantage of an invasion. And it's clear, right, that NATO and the U.S. is benefiting from Russia's invasion because it gives them all of that incentive that they need to say, see, we need NATO after all. Uh, Russia is the bad guy, like we've been saying all these years. It's one thing to sort of have those folks, those elites say that. But then when we think about left positions, grassroots leftists like you and I and people on the American left or people on the Ukrainian left or people on the Russian left, the left globally, the posture in order to be consistent with what most of us believe in seems to be self-determination, human rights, um, observing the right to defend oneself when attacked. And it's strange that there isn't that agreement on the global left about it. That's because you have a segment of the left that looks at matters like self-determination completely in relationship to the United States and not in relationship to the legitimacy or illegitimacy of that demand in particular countries. In other words, they, they view demands for self-determination when those demands are aimed against the United States or against U.S. allies as legitimate. But in situations when they're not, that's what I mean by relativism. And I've had these strange debates on Facebook with people who will say things like, well, 
you know, Ukraine is not really a nation or, you know, self-determination is okay, but it's not always uh, legitimate, particularly when there's fascists involved. So you get these weird qualifications that are related to this notion of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, which, which sends us into a rabbit hole. Now, one of the things that I'm concerned about is regular people out there. I'm less concerned about some of these idiots on the left than I am regular people that we on the left are trying to influence and, and trying to encourage to not only take a stand on something like Ukraine, but take a stand on Puerto Rico, take a stand on, uh, on Venezuela, uh, take a stand on Cuba, uh, take a stand on the Philippines, take a stand against uh, any kind of provocation on China, right? So we wanna reach people. If we are inconsistent, if people look at us and say, oh, oh, I see what you're saying. So it was okay for Russia to demand spheres of influence and go against Ukraine, but it's not okay for the United States to say Cuba is really in our sphere of influence, or maybe we need to put more restrictions on AMLO in Mexico. Uh, is that what you on the left is saying? Right? It's, it's like you can't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Either we are advocates for national self-determination, or we're not, and we should just admit it. This is what I've been saying to people, Sonali. It's like if you're inv- if you're supporting the Russian invasion, then damn it, just say it. Let's stop being coy. Just say yes. Let's support this authoritarian regime invading a country because we want to deceive ourselves into believing that this maniac who is running Russia is someone who's going to be bring legitimate peace and justice to Ukraine. Just say it. You used the word idiots earlier, and there's, of course, this common phrase, useful idiots, right? And it seems yes. as though it seems as though Russia has had new, Russia, like Syria's leader, Bashar al-Assad, has had useful idiots, quote unquote, on the American left um, that that they have been able to point to to legitimize their position. Um, yes. And this, you know, there, there are not that many of them, but the few that are there are are very vocal and seem to have some influence, right? Some of them have been friends of mine. Um, and, and I've watched this strange evolution. You know, there's this notion, Sonali, of what's called a red-brown alliance. It goes back to the 1920s and 30s when some uh, on the radical left were prepared to unite with fascists against social democrats and liberals. And we started to see that again in the 90s, after the end of the Cold War, of some uh, leftists being prepared to unite with radicals on the right who are anti-democracy, sometimes anti-globalization, and folks sometimes think that they can reach some sort of common agreement. Uh, A very dangerous course. You know, you see, when, when you, when you think about the enemy of my enemy is my friend, it can take you down a very, very dangerous path. And one of the things that uh, I stumbled across years ago, and which we introduced in the article about Ukraine, was based on the work of uh, Dr. Ernie Ernest Allen from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who studied the, uh, this, the rise of a pro-Japanese movement in the United States right before World War II. And if you look at that uh, pro-Japanese movement, and it also, there was a pro-Japanese movement in Asia, in a number of countries. One of the things that you see is this idea that Japan was a advocate in the struggle against Western imperialism. And that Japan had a right, some people would even see it as a right, to expand its sphere of influence. And there were people, even including W.E.B. Du Bois, Hmm. who were very sympathetic to the Japanese up until the beginning of World War II, and were in many cases willing to excuse away massive Japanese atrocities in Asia, particularly um, uh, what was done in Manchuria and the rape of Nanjing and other places, because they basically posited that no matter how bad Japan was, it didn't compare with Western imperialism. 
you've got that same sort of thinking. So even some really good people go down this rabbit hole and where they stop using critical thinking, they stop thinking dialectically and are thinking in a very linear way. Okay, if the United States is on one side, we obviously are gonna be on the other. There's one colleague of mine who, whose name will not be mentioned, who said, I mean, we disagree on virtually everything these days, but he said to me with great pride once a few years ago that he opposes everything the United States does. And it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean in the real world? And, and so you have a whole set of people that are really, they're ready and willing to believe anything that Putin says. Um, and we saw that in the Syrian uh, war, uh, where, for example, when the allegations were being made about Russian atrocities, the bombing of hospitals, or Assad's use of poison gas, people didn't want to believe it. Some people didn't want to believe it here because it was the United States that was making the accusation. And therefore, following that logic, if the United States makes that allegation, it can't possibly be true. Right. There is, seems to be such a desire to prove U.S. elites wrong that you end up on the side of uh, criminal elites from other nations. And what you were saying earlier about uh, nations like Japan, I mean, we've had that uh, in China, right? We've seen uh, right. some folks try to prove that, uh, pr you know, pr prove wrong the assertion that China is a violator of human rights because there's all there's always the whataboutism. But what about the U.S. isn't what we do worse? But both can be true. Uh, you know, there's just new evidence of China's internment of Uyghurs in internment camps. And there's definitely been some of the same folks denying China's crimes, that deny Russia's crimes, that deny Syria's crimes, because it's a way to stick it to the U.S. and stick it to the West. Ultimately, of course, when we're talking about Ukraine, which was our original story here, we, you know, what do you think can the left here support? I mentioned the $40 billion aid package, which, you know, it's hard to stomach $40 billion of U.S. taxpayer dollars going to Ukraine to defend itself when we are struggling, when we need the money for healthcare, education, et cetera. But should the left take positions on, say, these very tangible ways in which American leaders are stepping into the Ukraine, Russia, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah, this is this is complicated. So I would say, first of all, we should not oppose military assistance going to the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are not going to be able to stop the Russians using harsh language. Um, and so it, this is a war. That's one thing. The second thing is that we should absolutely be advocates of peace, but peace necessitates the withdrawal of the Russian troops. The United States should not be an obstacle to a negotiated settlement, but the United States should also not insert itself as an, um, an arbiter or as the uh, representative of the Ukrainian people. The Ukrainian people have to make up their own minds. But there's another part of this too, which is that we should demand consistency on the part of the United States uh, when we're looking internationally. So if the United States, if the Biden administration is upset as it should be about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it should be equally upset about what Israel has been doing to the Palestinians. The, the, the continuous land grabs, the apartheid system that's been established there. The, the United States should be absolutely concerned about that. If the United States is concerned about what the Russians are doing in Ukraine, they should also be concerned about what the Moroccans have done in Western Sahara, mm. in the occupation of two thirds of Western Sahara and, uh, and their efforts to annex this. So it, it's that we have to demand of the United States that it follows one standard. And so our argument here is not for this illusion that if we, keep yelling peace, that that's somehow going to break through to Putin. But we have to make sure that the United States, which we can influence, takes a consistent stand when it comes to Israel, when it comes to the Western Sahara, when it comes to other places, as opposed to this hypocritical stand 
And the hypocritical stand, as we see now, comes back and bites the US in the rear, which is one of the reasons that many countries in the global south have been silent in, in the context of the invasion of Ukraine, or they have opposed uh, the sanctions because their argument, which makes perfect sense, is this. If the United States was silent on Israel and Palestine, if the United States was silent on Morocco and Western Sahara, why should we speak up now? Hmm. And I get that. I really do. There's a logic there. But I would say that aggression anywhere must be stopped, even if it's being articulated in a certain way by the uh, uh, upholders of hypocrisy. Our job, certainly on the left, is to fight for consistency, to fight for democracy, and to fight for national self-determination. Bill, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We'll post a link to the article that you co-wrote about the uh, left's position, uh, some on the left's position on Ukraine, co-written by with Bill Gallegos and Hamala Rogers. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. My pleasure. My guest has been Bill Fletcher, Jr., senior scholar with the Institute for Policy Studies and the co-author of a new analysis just published on New Politics called When Should We Stop Excusing the Russian Invasion? I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Sonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, earlier this year rebranded an aspect of the Medicare program that used to be called Direct Contracting. The newly named ACO REACH stands for Accountable Care Organization, Realizing Equity, Access, and community health. According to CMS, its purpose is to, quote, encourage healthcare providers to coordinate care to improve the care offered to people with Medicare, especially those from underserved communities, a priority of the Biden-Harris administration, end of quote. But advocates of protecting publicly funded health care for seniors and who want to see Medicare be expanded to all warn that this new model of payment is a backdoor to privatization and have launched a campaign to overturn it. My guest is Dr. Anna Malinow. She is the a recently retired professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, past president of Physicians for a National Health Program and lead organizer for National Single Pair. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Sonali. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a great fan of your show. Thank you. I appreciate it. So let's mm-hmm. first talk about this direct contracting model. So those of us who are not directly uh, enrolled in Medicare, you know, we might have heard of Medicare Advantage, but we haven't really. Uh, there's a lot of technical <clears throat> complexities, which is part of the problem. And it seems as the Medicare keeps getting more and more complicated. What exactly was direct contracting now rebranded ACO? reach? Well, you're absolutely right. It is complicated. And uh, as much of our healthcare system, it's another complicated um, part of it. And uh, sometimes we feel that the complication is uh, unnecessary. Obviously, if we had Medicare for all, um, a national single payer program, it wouldn't be this complicated. We wouldn't really be talking on the show probably. But Before we start talking about direct contacting entities, I think, or Medicare direct contracting, I think it's really important to set the stage by talking about Medicare in general. And as I'm sure you know, and your your viewers and your listeners know, Medicare was passed into law in 1965 after a huge amount of opposition 
protection from the um, health insurance industry, from hospitals, and of course from the American Medical Association. And um, they found a compromise, and the compromise is called the three-layer cake. The three-layer cake consists of three layers, obviously. There's the part A, which pays for 100% of your hospital cost. Um, so this was, be, was going to be for seniors once they turn 65. Uh, they would automatically get part A, pay 100% of their hospital cost. Part B, which would only uh, pay 80% of their outpatient costs, and then Medicaid. So that was the three-layer cake, and Medicaid was for people, for poor people's um, healthcare needs. And um, since 1965, obviously Medicare has gone through a lot of changes. Uh, it includes more people, uh, but there was always, always this this door to the that that allowed the private health insurance to be part of our public program because when we talk about that part B that only covers 80% of outpatient costs, who pays the 20%? Well, most seniors that can afford it then pay for a supplemental or gap insurance that they purchase through a commercial private health insurance plan to cover that 20% gap. And so from the very beginning, there was always a little space there made for private health insurance in our public program called Medicare. Now, sort of fast forward to, uh, that was 1965. In 2003, uh, Bush and uh, signed after Congress passed into law, the um, Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, which opened the door even further to commercial private health insurance plans for people on Medicare. And so before 2003, if you think of Medicare sort of like, like a pie, a very small slice was, went for people who actually turned 65, went on Medicare, and then decided that they wanted to have a commercial insurance company manage their care. But after 2003, when the doors were flung wide open for private health insurance, more and more and more seniors signed up on Medicare Advantage, which is really a private health insurance plan once you turn 65 and are on Medicare. So it's not your employer paying your premiums anymore, it's the government paying for your premiums and they pay the premiums to these commercial insurance companies. And over time, more and more and more people signed up so that today, almost 50% of seniors sign up on Medicare Advantage. So that means that 50% of Medicare is already privatized. Today, it is already privatized. And what's the problem with having commercial health insurance in, in, our, in our public program? Well, it's huge. It costs the government more. Um, it does not provide better care. Um, in fact, um, it recruits healthy seniors, but it kicks out unhealthy and sick seniors. And um, so, so not only does it, does it cost more, it, it, um, it keeps 15% of every Medicare dollar for, for profits and, and administration. So just think of Medicare already being half privatized. Now, the Medicare budget for 2020 was $1 trillion. Now that's a lot of money that keeps capitalists up at night, you know, trying to figure out how they can get that money. Because honestly, Medicare Advantage um, is much more lucrative to commercial insurance plans than even employer-sponsored health insurance is, which is amazing to think about. So the private insurance companies already have half of that $1 trillion, and they started looking at the other half of, the, of that pie. How can they get access to the other $500 billion? Well, they found a very willing partner with CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, in that they basically colluded together. Maybe collusion is not the exact uh, word, but 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 they were a very willing partner to start to privatize the traditional Medicare part, which was really the public part of of Medicare. These are seniors that rejected Medicare Advantage and wanted to stay in their traditional Medicare with their Part A and Part B and, um, and their supplemental plans. So how do they do that? Well, what CMS did is uh, in the waning days of the, of the Trump administration, they created this program called direct contracting that what, what it does, it, it inserts a for-profit middleman called direct contracting entity such as like DCE, that's where the word comes from, 
which are mostly investor owned, private equity, venture capital, commercial insurance companies, straight out of Wall Street to manage the care of seniors on traditional Medicare. And they're doing this without the consent or knowledge of those seniors on traditional Medicare. And, and you when, have you to say, wonder, when you say sorry, manage care, what does that mean exactly? What does that look like? <laughs> well, you're right. That's a great question. What does it mean to manage care? Well, whenever you're inserting a, a, a middleman in between uh, the, the care of, of um, the, the patient, uh, because, um, you know, the idea to manage care is to coordinate their care, to decrease costs, and to improve outcomes, right? That's the whole purpose behind HMOs, health maintenance organizations, and ACOs, and um, Medicare So, so basically, is, is it profitable to allow patient uh, X to get this particular treatment? Will it be worth the money that we're going to spend on? I mean, that kind of, those healthcare well, that, decisions based on cost? That would, that would be the idea. The idea would be to make um, informed choices for your beneficiaries that would lower costs and improve care. But the problem is that with commercial insurance companies, as with the investor-owned companies that own these direct contracting entities, their, their, their aim is really profits for their shareholders, right? Otherwise, the they wouldn't be interested. I'm sorry? Otherwise, they wouldn't even be interested. They wouldn't be interested. They wouldn't be in business because, because the social responsibility of a business, right, is to their shareholders. And so and it, it is not to the patients. So whenever you insert a for-profit middleman to manage care, you always have to worry about the fact that there is a huge incentive there to make a profit. And that is the problem with our healthcare system is that there are huge incentives to make profits. You know, we spend $4 trillion on, on, on our health, national health expenditures. And the reason why we keep spending more and more money every year is because at the end of the day, somebody takes home $4 trillion, right? And so there's very little incentive to keep costs down when, when there's a profit to be made. And now there's a huge profit to be made, $500 billion to be made on that part of Medicare, which is known as traditional Medicare and is being threatened by direct contracting, which are these, these uh, DCEs, these middlemen that are now going to be inserted to manage the care of, of seniors on traditional Medicare. And as I said, these seniors are not choosing Medicare Advantage plans, right? Medicare Advantage tries to recruit patients through their incessant ads, right? Joe Namath and, and, and it all sounds that. nice, Medicare Advantage. Who wouldn't want an advantage? Exactly. It sounds really, really nice. But the truth is, is that while it might be nice for some seniors that don't need health care, when you need health care, when you get sick as a senior, then you face the narrow networks, the prior authorizations, the denials and delays in care. But back to the, the DCEs, is that um, there, there is a huge incentive for them, right, to make a profit. And as a matter of fact, while Medicare Advantage, by law, has to spend 85% of the Medicare dollars on health care. These DCEs, by law, <laughs> can spend, um, up to, must spend at, at least 60%. That means that there is a possibility, it will be not very frequent, but there is a, there is a possibility that they can take home 40% of the Medicare dollars. Most of them are probably going to be ending up Ending, taking up 25% of the Medicare dollar. So this really threatens the solvency of, of Medicare overall. But back to the seniors, they're being, the, the way that they're being recruited is not, is not like with Medicare Advantage. The, these DCEs are recruiting physicians, physician practices. Basically, they're, they're recruiting the doctors, they're, they're uh, buying the doctors, the doctor practices, and then um, they, all, any patient that is in that doctor's panel automatically gets assigned to that DCE that the doctor has joined. So the, the, the patient, it, it, is, it is this bait and switch. It is this backdoor privatization because patients are not choosing this. It, they, they're just being, they're being sent a letter that says, well, now your doctor has joined this DCE and you're part of this DCE. And that's how... Mm -hmm. 
they're being recruited. Wow. So now they've rebranded it to ACO Reach, and as I mentioned, um, you know the, the the acronym is quite lengthy: uh, Accountable Care Organization Realizing Equity access and community health, those buzzwords, equity, access, and community, right? Those three buzzwords in particular are meant to invoke the sense that this is for the good of vulnerable people. And in fact, CMS's press release says that it's there to help underserved communities, a priority of the Biden-Harris administration. What's wrong with that? Uh, Everything, everything is so wrong with that because it puts a bullseye on on uh, people of color and people in, pure, in, in poor underserved communities. Um, so we cannot possibly trust corporations which created inequality in the first place to achieve health equity. In fact, everything in our healthcare system that raises prices, the premiums, the co-pays, the surprise bills, the hospital bills, all reduce wages. And why? Because wages are, because premiums are just deferred wages. And they contribute to things like homelessness, to bankruptcy, to food insecurity, and to death, ultimately. As, as I said, the incentive for a corporation is not equity. It is profit for their shareholders, and that's the social responsibility for business. And by, making, by, by taking public dollars and giving them to the profits of corporations, you take away from the resources that could go towards creating true equity. Um, and it's not, you know, only the obscene amount of money that we spend on militarism and empire, but also the wasted resources on healthcare, the subsidies that go, the billions of dollars that go to, to subsidize the exchanges that go directly to private insurance companies, to Medicaid, which is already privatized, to Medicare Advantage, to these DCEs, and now to the ACO reach which could be really better spent to improve the social determinants of health, such as you know, paying for a living wage, canceling student debt, canceling medical bankruptcy, and of course, paying for a national single payer healthcare system. Mm. So paying corporations more money to achieve equity is just uh, not going to happen. And so what your point in particular around the end goal for progressives, which is to expand Medicare, to everybody, that gets threatened when you have this privatization approach to Medicare, right? It's a, it's terrible for Medicare for All, exactly, because if we privatize Medicare, then there won't be any Medicare for All left to fight for, absolutely. Tell me about the campaign that PNHP has launched to target this, because you know it took you and me 10 to 12 minutes to come to an understanding um, of what it is that the government is doing, it, you know, it seems as though the public might have a hard time understanding what the attack is all about. Doesn't fit easily on a placard. Tell me about the campaign that PNHP has launched to expose this and, and undo ACO reach. So, you know, our campaign, um, it was Physicians for National Health Program, National Single Payer, and many other organizations, public citizens, social security work have been working really assiduously since, um, well, the end of last year, November, December, uh, to try to convince members of Congress, many of whom had no idea what direct contracting was, that that it, it need, this is a program that needed to end. It, it, it was um, uh, developed under the Trump administration and then the Biden administration, instead of stopping the program altogether, which they could have, definitely they could have, what they did is they just rebranded it, right? And then they opened up the doors even further for more privatization of traditional Medicare. So we've been working really hard, um, writing letters, uh, signing petitions, um, visiting with members of Congress. And as a result of all of our um, activism, in fact, that's what that's what resulted in the name change, one. And then two, in March, the Con- uh, Congressional Progressive Caucus issued their slate of executive actions for President Biden. And number two on that slate was um, and to issue an executive action uh, ending direct contracting entities, which President Biden could do with a stroke of a pen. So that's something that people can do. We have um, a couple of petitions out there, one to Secretary Becerra, uh, telling Secretary Becerra is the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He could also stop this program tomorrow if he so wished. 
So we have a petition. We also have a petition to President Biden as urging him to issue an executive order to end direct contracting. Uh, I've been doing this for decades, uh, but this is the first time where I really, really feel that this is a winnable fight. We have to fight back the privatization of traditional Medicare. And then next is going to be to fight the privatization uh, through Medicare Advantage. And then we're going to get uh, a national single payer. I want to share your optimism. Thank you so much, uh, Anna, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Of course, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Sonali. Keep up your great work. Thank you. Appreciate it as well. My guest is Dr. Anna Malinau. She is a recently retired professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Francisco, past president of Physicians for a National Health Program and lead organizer for National Single Payer. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access.